as I've been preaching a series of sermons to men in particular on the Lord's Day mornings and considering how we are to love our wives even as Christ has loved the church and we are to love them sacrificially even as Christ has served us and he didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. My thoughts have been toward uh, John chapter 13. And so I want us to turn to John chapter 13 as we tonight around the table of the Lord consider his sacrificial love for us. And in particular, what has really been upon my mind, the example of Christ's love for us and service to us is when he washed his disciples' feet. It's a familiar passage in John chapter 13, that one that I preached on multiple times. But I'm not going to get to that part this evening. Instead, I want to just preach on verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, but every time I read John 13 verse 1, it's really hard to go over that one verse without just taking time to meditate on the love of Christ for his own. But follow along as I read in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 through verse 15. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin And began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments And reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. John chapter 13 begins a section in John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17, that records what are the last hours of Jesus' life. 
These would be just a few hours before he would be arrested and stand trial. What we have recorded in John 13 through chapter 17 is unique to John's gospel. It's not found in the other three gospels. These five chapters record his ministry to his disciples in private before his crucifixion. It is often called the upper room discourse because, as you recall, Jesus told them to go and secure a room that was above a household. These kinds of rooms would often be reserved for those who would be pilgrims during times of various feasts and the Passover for those who would come into Jerusalem. And so they secured this upper room. And so it's often called the upper room discourse. Sometimes the farewell discourse because he's preparing them for his departure. And we find in John 13 through 17 some of the most comforting words that our Savior ever uttered. Think of some of the things we find in these chapters. In verse chapter 14, Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. At where I am, there you may be also. It's in this upper room discourse, in these final hours, that Jesus makes the statement in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. In verse 15 of chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it's here that he promises the Holy Spirit that he will send. In chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. It's in this upper room discourse where Jesus says those words in chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. It's in this upper room discourse that Jesus assures them of the love of the Father and His own love for them. He says in chapter 15, verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. In that same chapter, verse 13, Jesus said those famous words that describe this great love. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he tells them, I call you my friends, preparing them for his death, the laying down of his life for them. It is in chapter 16, verse 33, that Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These are comforting words. These last hours of Jesus privately with his disciples as he prepares them for his death. 
We could call these chapters love chapters. The word love, loved, and loves, those three words appear 34 times in these chapters. And therefore it is appropriate that the Apostle John would begin this section of his gospel with these words, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This describes the love of Jesus for his disciples, his church, his own. Here we see the electing love of Jesus. He had chosen them out of the world to be his own by sovereign grace. And here we see the enduring love of Jesus. He loved them to the end. John sets the historical context for us in these words in verse 1, before the feast of the Passover. Now this is significant because Jesus would be the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, slain once and for all time. The Passover lamb was a prophetic type which pointed to the person and work of Jesus as the lamb slain for his people. This type, this shadow of Jesus that was to come, that was observed for so many years in Israel, clearly pointed to the coming of one who would once and for all time shed his blood for his people. The announcement of the birth of Jesus, you remember, was to shepherds. That's significant because in the birth of Jesus, there was the birth of the Lamb of God who would be slain. John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1.29 and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, the author, the Apostle John, has several visions of Jesus Christ in heaven being worshipped as the Lamb who was slain. The feast of the Passover, in which a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish will be slain, in which the blood of that lamb would be applied to the doorpost of that home, to the lintel. It was about to begin in Jerusalem, but little did the inhabitants of the land, the land know that the lamb, the lamb to which all the previous Passover lambs pointed was about to shed his blood that judgment might pass over those for whom he was slain. The blood was about to be applied, but not to doorposts, but to the hearts and souls of sinners. And so John writes, now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. That's significant. Jesus spoke about this hour, the hour of his death. The hour of his death is a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of sinners. It had now come. You remember back in chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, that Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Speaking of that hour that was approaching, the hour of his death. The way this hour is spoken of in John 14, verse 1, 
is this way. He would depart out of the, out of the world to the Father and go back to God. Look at verse 1. It says again, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And then in verse 3, it speaks of him coming forth from God in the incarnation when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says that he was now going back to God. So there was the humiliation of Christ in the incarnation. The eternal Son of God empties himself, humbles himself, becomes a man. But that humiliation within in exaltation. He came from heaven to be subjected to the hands of sinful men who would crucify him, but he would go back to his Father in all the glory that he had before the incarnation. The cross would end with a crown. And so John again sets that historical context. The hour had come. He had come from the Father, but now he's about to go back to the Father. Jesus endured the cross Why? It says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, For the joy set before Him, knowing that after the cross, He would return to His Father, that He would be exalted. By the way, that's how we endure trials as well. We're always looking to the future. We go through our present suffering with our eyes set on the end. The Apostle Paul said that we Wait eagerly for the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies in Romans 8 verse 23. We have the Holy Spirit who is a pledge of our inheritance. He is the one who is the guarantee of our redemption. We set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're looking to the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We live in this present world and in this present condition. However, we're always looking ahead toward the end. Always standing on our tiptoes, as it were, straining our eyes forward to what lies ahead. Because the future glory of heaven is a present help and strength for our souls. Jesus was looking forward to that time as well, when, having come in humility, he would die, but he would be raised, and he would be exalted, he would return back to his Father. And so John sets the historical context for what is taking place. It is before the feast of the Passover, it anticipates a time when Jesus, having been crucified, would be glorified. Jesus had walked and lived among his disciples for a period of about three years. They had seen many signs and miracles. They had heard the words of life from the lips of Jesus. But now Jesus was about to die. He would be resurrected, and he would walk with them for 40 days afterwards, and then he would go back to heaven. He would ascend back to where he came from. He would depart, as it says, out of this world to the Father and go back To God. So he wants to prepare his disciples for his departure. He knows that everything that's about to happen with his arrest, his trial, his sufferings, his crucifixion would be difficult for them. It would test their souls. 
It would test them in a manner they'd never been tested before. And so Jesus prepares them for his death. He instructs them. He informs them about what is to come and the persecution that they will face. And he comforts them. And here in John 13, he gives them a concrete example of his own love for them by humbling himself to wash their feet. Now that would be a foreshadowing of his humiliation on the cross. How he came to be a servant and to serve by giving his life a ransom for sinners. It would be an example of humility and servanthood for them to follow and for us to follow. And so what we see in this verse, and really throughout all these chapters in this upper room discourse, is the love of Jesus for his disciples, the love of Jesus for his own. Notice the great love of Christ for his disciples. This is the phrase, it's It's just a phrase that ought to ring out in our minds constantly. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a wonderful statement about the great love of Jesus for his people. And this whole section of John's gospel is overflowing with statements and examples of the love of Christ for his people. In verse 34 of the same chapter, he would say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In chapter 14, verse 21, he says, I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He speaks of his great love. In chapter 15, verse 9, again, just as the fathers loved me, I have loved you. What great love Jesus bestows on unworthy sinners. There is no greater love. Of all the loves that there are, there is no love like the love of God in Christ for His people. And here in this verse we see it is an electing love and an enduring love. And the next time as we come to the table we'll see the exemplary love of Jesus as he washes their feet. But this evening, as we prepare for the the table of the Lord, consider the electing love of Jesus and the enduring love of Jesus. First, the electing love of Jesus. Having loved his own. His own. And that's one of those phrases that we could just meditate on and consider having loved his own. Designations for believers are throughout the scripture. We're we're called saints, holy ones. And that tells us something about our salvation. We know we're not saints in practice, we're sinners. But yet we're called saints, holy ones, because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to our account. We're called Christians in the Bible because we bear the name of our Savior. We're called disciples of Jesus Christ because we are learners. We learn from Him and we follow Him. We are called slaves of Jesus Christ because we bow before Him as Lord. He is our Master. 
We're called believers because we're resting in the finished work of Jesus for our salvation. We are called the church because we are the assembly of God's people. Those who are like stones that make up this temple where God manifests his glory. We're the house of God. And we are called priests in that house because we offer up spiritual sacrifices of worship to God. We are called children of God. And He is our Father. We call Him Abba. But here, the disciples, and also it refers to all who would believe through their word, are called His own. His own. It means belonging to a particular person. Belonging to Him. We are His possession. That's what we're called in Titus 2 verse 14. He gave Himself to redeem us. To purify for Himself, it says, a people for His own possession. One Greek lexicon defines possession in Titus 2.14 in this way. A property owned as a rich and distinctive possession. Metaphorically in the New Testament of God's redeemed people as His costly possession and a distinctive treasure. We're a people possessed by God. We belong to Him. Why did the disciples belong to Jesus? Why were they His own? Because He chose them to be His own. In John 6, verse 70, He said, Did I not choose you? And in chapter 15, in this upper room discourse, in verse 16, He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And in chapter 15, verse 19, He says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. He describes them as his own, chosen by him to be his own possession. And that's true of all believers. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're a chosen race. We're a people for God's own possession. The new covenant is described in this way, quoting Jeremiah in Hebrews 8 verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Belonging to Him, His own. He is our God. We are His people. Jesus chose to love His disciples. If you're a believer today, you're his own because he chose to love you. We love because he first loved us. And so brothers and sisters, always remember that you are his own because of sovereign grace. Never entertain the thought that you belong to him because you've somehow merited his love. Or you've somehow earned his love. 
or ultimately because of your own doing or your own choosing. Now you belong to him because of sovereign grace bestowed upon unmerited, undeserving sinners. So we must always live in the light of the truth that we are his own and that we are his own by sovereign grace alone. This is at the heart of what motivates us to live to his glory. My life is not my own. I'm his. I don't live for myself. I belong to Christ. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify him in every way. And so as we live the Christian life, we should always be asking, is this consistent with the one to whom I belong? Will this represent the name of my Savior? Can I do this? Can I think this? Can I say this in the name of the one to whom I belong? For we're to do all to the glory of God, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we are his own. So here it says, having loved his own, his own possession by sovereign grace, he chose them. And it describes them in this way, who were in the world. They were in the world. They lived in this world. And he was about to, again, leave them by way of death and then resurrection. They were in the world, but they were no longer of the world. John understood this, and that's why he penned in 1 John 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are of God. We belong to Christ. Yet the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They serve the devil like we once did, knowingly or unknowingly. And so they were in the world. They're his own, and he's about to leave them. So this is why so much of these chapters, in these last hours of being privately with them before his trial and his crucifixion, he would comfort them and remind them that they belonged to him, and he loved them, but he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He would send his spirit, another helper, another comforter, who would be with them until he would return for them. This world is a scary place for the one who belongs to Christ. Jesus would prepare them by saying, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. There's no reason to fear. Jesus comforts them. As those who've been called to Christ, those who were in the world but no longer of the world, this same love that chose them to be his own, by that same love he would keep them and protect them to the very end. So notice, secondly, not only the electing love of Jesus, they were his own by sovereign grace, but notice the enduring love of Jesus. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What comforting words. Consider those words over and over again. He loved them to the end. To the very end. Now, this 
word that is translated here to the end can mean to the end temporally, here to the end of his life until the time he would leave them. But then he would still love them. He would send his spirit. He would still be with them, he would promise, to the end of the age through the spirit whom he would give to them. Could be that just means he loved them to the very end. But it could mean, and could be translated in this idea, that he would love them to the fullest, quantitatively. This Greek word behind this English word can mean either. If it means to the fullest measure, it may point then to the act of him washing their feet as a symbol of him cleansing their souls. The fullest measure of the love of Christ for his people is expressed in the wrath-bearing death of Christ on their behalf, humbling himself not only by becoming a man, but then being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He will love them to the fullest by giving himself up for them, an atoning sacrifice. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It, It demonstrates to the fullest his love for us. And while it's true that Jesus loved them to the fullest measure, I believe it's more likely, though, that this phrase is meant as it's translated and as you would just normally understand it, that he loved them to the very end of his earthly life, typifying his love for all his disciples to the very end of the age, to the end of their lives, to the end of the age, and really throughout all eternity. Having chosen to love them before the foundation of the world, he would love them to the very end and love them eternally. And so with the cross before him, we might think that Jesus would be thinking about his own agony, his own pain, his own bearing of sin upon the cross. Yet John tells us that he was still intent on loving his disciples to the very end. So he retreats with them to instruct them and to comfort them. He loves them to the very end. Now think about these disciples we would have grown impatient with them. They were slow to understand. A little bit later, Philip will ask him in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's still patiently teaching them to the very end of his life. They were often concerned with their own power and prestige. They wanted to know who would be the greatest. And Luke 9 records for us that they're arguing about who would be the greatest among them. And then in Luke chapter 22, there's another dispute about who would be regarded the greatest among them. Sinners such as we would have thrown up our hands in disgust and said, that's it, I give up. Get away from me. (laughs) I don't want anything else to do with you but not Jesus. Instead, he loved them to the end. And yet Jesus knew what they were about to do. They would forsake him. They would fall away because of Jesus that very night. The shepherd would be stricken 
and the sheep would be scattered. And even Peter himself would deny that he even knew him. He knew that they would temporarily crumble when he was delivered over to be crucified, and yet he loved them to the end. So remember, they were his by sovereign electing love, and they would remain his because of his enduring love. While it's true of these disciples who walked with him on earth, it's also certainly true of us who are his own Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He will never lose any of those who belong to Him. He will love us to the very end. Those whom He has chosen to love from the beginning, He will love to the end. Your sins, your failures, your weaknesses will not be a cause for Him to abandon you. His love for His elect knows no end. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. His covenant love for us knows no end. In a moment we'll sing, I am His and He is mine. And the words of that hymn says this, Love with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Gracious Spirit from above, Thou hast taught me it is so. All this full and perfect peace, all this transport, O divine, in a love that cannot cease, I am His and He is mine. In a love that cannot cease, I am His and He is mine. We'll sing shortly. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Having loved His own, He loved them to the end. Brethren, let's meditate on and consider these things tonight as we come to the table of the Lord. As we rest in the sovereign love of God for sinners as we rest in the love of God for us in Christ. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we know that these disciples that Jesus chose to be with Him and walk with Him through those three years were undeserving sinners. You chose to love them. You chose them out of the world from among those who were dead in trespasses and sins and then you having saved them being in the world as your representatives you love them to the very end and Father we thank you that this is true of all believers we've been loved by you not because of anything in us and so Father as we come to the table tonight may we Consider and meditate on the great love that you have for your own. Lord, may we find comfort for our souls as well. Knowing that you love us to the end. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. That your mercies indeed are new every morning. Your loving kindness never ceases. It never fails. 
May we find comfort in these things. May it stir us up that we might love you and that we might persevere in the faith knowing that you always hold on to us and keep us and protect us so that we will one day indeed be before you as the company of the redeemed before the Lamb slain for us. In whose name we pray. Amen.